Hello and welcome back to the Energy Flux Interactive Podcast. I'm your host, Seb Kennedy, founding editor of the Energy Flux newsletter. If you haven't done so already, you can sign up for free email updates from the newsletter over at www.energyflux.news, where you'll get alerts to upcoming podcasts and a whole lot more free content besides that. Now, it's my immense pleasure to be joined on today's show by British writer, historian and researcher of energy, Simon Pirani, to discuss the escalating crisis in Ukraine. Simon was, for many years, Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies before retiring at the end of last year, and he's Honorary Professor at the University of Durham. Simon's written extensively about Russia, Ukraine and Eastern Europe, both from the perspective of social history and in terms of the gas and energy sector in those regions. He's authored several titles on Russian political history and energy and economic affairs in Eastern Europe and the Caspian region. His most recent book is Burning Up, A Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption, which explores the technological, social and economic systems that perpetuate excessive fossil fuel consumption. Simon, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Seb. So, Simon, uh, the situation in eastern Ukraine, it's front page news again. Uh, there are fears growing of an escalation or conflict in the Donbass region. There's speculation of a potential cutoff in Russian energy supplies to Europe, as well as retaliatory sanctions in the event of an invasion. And uh, relations really seem to have deteriorated in recent years. Um, of course, since the annexation of Crimea, the two sides achieved an unlikely gas transit agreement in December 2019, which at the time was hailed as a breakthrough in improving relations. Could you help us to understand how we got here and where do things go so wrong? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, I think the place to start is with Russia, with uh, Russian policy. And I think there are two different aspects to uh, at least two different aspects to uh, Russian policy towards Ukraine. Uh, the, the principal two are a commercial aspect and a political aspect. Um, the 2019 transit agreement uh, you've mentioned, which provided for Ukraine to continue transporting uh, Russian gas through to Europe uh, between 2020 and the end of 2024, uh, this was an example of uh, commercial policy uh, in action. Um, the deal wasn't really what Ukraine wanted. It wanted a higher level of uh, transit. It wasn't really w uh, what Russia wanted. Um, it felt the terms uh, white, uh, were not quite good enough. Um, but that's what happens in uh, a commercial relationship. And this is the, the last piece of uh, gas business that uh, Russia is doing with Ukraine because Russian exports of gas to Ukraine for consumption in Ukraine, uh, direct exports uh, stopped in 2016. So this business continued $7 billion for gas transit up to the end of 2024, <clears throat> after which I think we all believe uh, transit will be reduced to a minimal level or to zero. Uh, it was the outcome of a long negotiation. Uh, and that was a commercial deal. And actually, during 2020 and uh, much of 2020, well, all of 2021, uh, that worked fine. Uh, gas was transported to Europe through that route, as well as by other routes. The problems that have arisen are about the 
political relationship, if we can even call it that, uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine. So first of all, uh, Russia has since 2014 uh, and the uh, overthrow of the <clears throat> government headed by President Yanukovych in 2014. Since that time, Russia has given political and military support to the so-called republics in Donetsk and Lugansk, um, which are headed by these separatist uh, forces. Um, but these have become increasingly, from Russia, Russia's point of view, a headache. The governments there are clearly illegitimate and unpopular. Uh, and if in 2015, annexation of those areas by Russia, uh, annexation in the way that it's annexed the Crimean Peninsula, um, if that annexation seemed unlikely then, there are signs now that that may be changing. So Russia has distributed uh, 800,000 passports to uh, citizens of those um, republics. Uh, this is something it also did in Georgia, in the uh, breakaway areas of Georgia uh, that have uh, Russian support uh, back in the early 2000s. It's something um, that uh, suggests to Ukrainians that uh, Russia may be trying to increase its uh, control and involvement in those republics. And there's also been increasing administrative support given to those uh, governments, those, those separatist entities from Moscow, with politicians coming down, political parties, uh, and indeed political parties within Russia calling for the uh, formalization uh, of uh, that relationship and for the, the, the stepping up uh, of that uh, relationship. Now, in 2015, the, the Minsk agreements were uh, signed between the European powers, Ukraine and Russia, um, to regulate the situation after the worst phase of the armed uh, conflict in eastern Ukraine. Um, but these agreements were, were flawed from the start. They were agreements that have not been implemented. Uh, they provided for an amnesty uh, for the many prisoners. They provided for the disbanding of illegal military formations. They provided for the Ukrainian side to uh, give special autonomous status for those areas within Ukraine. Now, there's been, whichever angle you look at this from, there's been no progress. The separatists have not uh, implemented an amnesty, still less have they disbanded uh, their military formations uh, within Ukraine. Uh, the right-wing nationalists are very opposed to granting this autonomous status prior to disarmament. Uh, and that's always been a, an issue uh, which has been in the air. The Russian government has clearly decided to use this situation to weaken Ukraine, which uh, many people would argue, and I think I would basically agree with them, that insofar as it has a strategic long-term aim here, that weakening of Ukraine uh, politically is a strategic uh, long-term aim. So all that's been going on. And uh, when we talk about, you mentioned in your introduction, uh, the, the crisis in Ukraine, of course, what this really is, is Russia flagging up its discontent. It's, it, it, apart from the things I've mentioned, um, nothing has changed on the ground. There's, a, there's a, 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 what you might call a low-level military conflict. I don't like using those sort of words. It's not low-level for the people who live there, but this, is, this conflict is, is trundling on. 
in eastern Ukraine and people's lives are being made uh, a misery as a result. Um, but now further layers have been added to this because Russia sees this as something of an instrument in its relationship with the Western powers and pushing back politically against those powers who it perceives uh, may be vulnerable to it reasserting its influence uh, in uh, Central Europe. So there's a whole layer of complication that's been added to that and I could talk about, but I, uh, I won't because it would go off into a whole other track. But th th there's also a whole layer of media speculation through which um, your uh, listeners may be having to try to fight uh, on the Western side. And of course, it's difficult um, to fight your way through that. And hopefully, I'm making it a little bit clearer. Yeah, thank you. That That's a very comprehensive overview of, of, of kind of what's led up to this. So it, it sounds like it's really the political element that's that's brought us to this precipice, if you can call it that, that the, the gas angle was almost sort of done and dusted with the with the transit agreement but 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 gas is kind of never far out of the picture in terms of relations between um russia and and ukraine uh, before we get on to that could um could, let's just discuss like how let's take it look look forwards a bit and discuss how this could all pan out obviously we have these high level diplomatic talks going on um what what's in play um, for for Moscow, Kiev, Washington, and Brussels, how how might these talks culminate, and and is there a, a pathway towards de-escalation? And and specifically, I'm interested to understand what Russia's exit strategy could be, because you can't demobilize a hundred thousand troops from the Ukrainian border without having something to show back home for it. So you know, Putin needs some sort of a concession. What do you think all sides could agree upon? And is a diplomatic resolution more likely than an invasion? I, uh, I'm not a uh, political analyst and, um, I can't speak in detail about the various motivations of the various Western governments who clearly don't see all this uh, the same way. I think what I can usefully uh, say to you is, first of all, many commentators have pointed out that an all-out invasion of Ukraine, which if you read the newspapers in the, in the West or listened to the various uh, sort of leaks that come out from the Western intelligence services, that's what you believe uh, is about to happen. I mean, in fact, that's a huge, that would be a huge risk uh, for Russia. Um, it, it, uh, it would have an unpredictable outcome. It would commit Russia to a land war in Europe for many, many years. And I don't see why the Kremlin would want to take that risk or in, indeed what it would get out of it. Uh, from my point of view, uh, Russia is an imperial power in decline. It's lost much of its economic strength. And we, we've seen um, really the, the history of Putin's Russia of the last 20 years has been an attempt to regain that uh, economic power by playing to Russia's uh, economic strengths of uh, oil, gas and minerals uh, exports. But that has not put Russia back into the league of being a great power in the way that uh, the Kremlin uh, might hope. Um, so it is asserting its position against uh, the stronger uh, imperial powers in the West with its uh, military strength. Um, they didn't mind when 
Russia did that in Chechnya and uh, broadly uh, NATO just looked the other way when that uh, war was taking place. Um, they, they didn't mind that much uh, when Russia gave the support it gave to uh, Bashar al-Assad uh, in Syria. Um, but Ukraine's much closer to home. Obviously, it's, it's, uh, this is partly about the way that the European uh, continent uh, is, falls into sort of spheres of influence, as the Kremlin would have it. And uh, I think Russia's smaller neighbours, such as Ukraine, feel that, well, Ukraine is suffering as a consequence. And I think uh, some of its other smaller neighbours on its western border feel uh, that they could uh, suffer also. Um, Belarus also is obviously part of this calculation. I think the, the instability of the government in Belarus uh, resulting from its you know, the fact that there's a big proportion of the Belarusian population that uh, really hates uh, the government and regards it as a, uh, a dictatorship and an imposition, um, that's not uh, helping uh, from the Kremlin's point of view. Now, I think uh, the Kremlin would the best outcome for the Kremlin, to, to come to your question, would be to get some of the European powers and ideally uh, the USA to twist the Ukrainian government's arm and force it to make some concessions over the situation in eastern Ukraine to resolve this unresolved situation around the uh, Minsk agreements. And I can see situations where the USA or European governments might indeed make an agreement with Russia on those lines. And uh, reading the newspapers about uh, Macron's visit yesterday did nothing to kind of dissuade me that that is a possibility. But there's another question, whether, you, whether a Ukrainian government could make the sort of concessions that Putin wants and stay in office uh, is less clear. There were uh, very aggressive armed uh, demonstrations, again, by uh, right-wing nationalists against the so-called Steinmeier formula, which was a, a proposition put forward at one stage of this negotiation about uh, Minsk, which would have uh, proceeded with the sort of moves towards autonomy for those regions. And uh, that uh, was a reminder of just how fragile uh, the Ukrainian government's hold on this uh, situation is. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think insofar as there's a strategic aim here, I think, well, let's put it this way, that uh, from the Kremlin's point of view, a weaker Ukrainian government and unresolved conflict in the East are uh, things that help its position in the, uh, in the bigger picture of things about its relationship uh, with the uh, Western powers. Yeah, so we're talking about unfinished business, really, from from the last time this this all flared up um you, you've touched upon uh the the the, the follow-up question i wanted to ask you about the 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 kind of ethnic identity if you like of the people in these semi-autonomous disputed regions and uh, I, I do come across commentators um to kind of appear sympathetic to moscow claiming that the inhabitants of breakaway regions in eastern ukraine identify as russian and wish to be governed as such um, is there credence to these claims, and uh, or, or, or could you even even be seen uh, like pro-Russian separatists as being kind of subjugated by Kiev? Is that a credible perception of, of the situation? I, I, I don't think the word uh, "subjugated" works here 
uh, Seb, I mean, you know, let's go back to 2014. The pro-Russian separatists took up arms uh, against Kiev with support uh, from Russia. Uh, that was what turned what was previously a civil conflict and a, a great worry to people in Ukraine uh, into an armed uh, conflict. And in, it's in that context that the language question, which has lain dormant uh, for a long time, um, has again become forced uh, to the centre of uh, politics. Um, Ukraine has, th th there's been a language law under discussion in Ukraine for as, as long as I've been going there, which is uh, from the, well, not quite as long as I've been going there, but from from the uh, beginning of the post-Soviet times, so 30 years, there's been talk of passing a language law and it, it's finally been passed um, in 2018. Uh, it requires the use of Ukrainian in some uh, public spaces. Um, it requires increasing levels of uh, uh, obligatory Ukrainian in, for example, exams in schools, uh, an increasing proportion of TV time to be used uh, for the Ukrainian languages and so on. Now, um, in the wilder reaches of the internet, uh, this is reported as a ban on the use of Russian. I mean, that's just nonsense on a par with kind of anti-vaccine propaganda and actually, uh, I think, very often coming politically uh, from the same place. Um, on the other hand, there's a real ban on the use of Ukrainian in schools uh, in the separatist controlled areas and in, in, in some other contexts. It's quite difficult to tell because the, the flow of information outside uh, from uh, those republics, the outside isn't great. But I, I think this I think what's happened is that unfortunately, wars uh, bring uh, national divisions uh, to the surface and national conflicts as opposed to good uh, relationships between nationalities. I think that's what's happened. Um, I think it's happened on both sides. Um, and that's a, that, that's a product uh, of war. But uh, to, to, yeah, that, to use the word subjugated would be um, a step too far because that's not how the conflict uh, originated. Interesting. Thank you. All right. Um, we should probably talk about energy flows, this being an energy podcast. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the big discussion topic around this whole conflict is, um, you know, will flows of energy, particularly natural gas, be disrupted uh, into Europe uh, and into Ukraine, of course, um, which would obviously have enormous repercussions in global markets. Um, Russian gas kept flowing into Europe during the Cold War, but uh, energy infrastructure is always a strategic target in any armed conflict. So do you think Gazprom would stop supplying gas to European buyers in a hot war with Ukraine? And what, what's the likelihood of gas pipelines being targeted and damaged or even destroyed during uh, a potential military conflict? Yeah. I, so first of all, uh, as I've said, I think that um, an all-out invasion of Ukraine uh, is extremely unlikely. Um, I, I don't think it's impossible. I understand why Ukrainian friends tell me, yes, we've got the uh, the go bag all prepared with our passports and our valuables, and uh, you know we're ready to flee. We're very uh, frightened. We're just trying to get on with our daily lives. So I don't want to minimise that. Um, danger as it 
you know, as as Ukrainian friends are living it uh, at this moment. Um, however, I think in you know looking at all angles of the picture, uh, that is unlikely. Um, I think if if that happened, I mean, of course, all bets would be off. Um, and uh, I think then uh, it, it's possible that uh, Gazprom would stop uh, supplying gas to European buyers. Yes, I mean, I'm only telling you what's being discussed uh, in the Financial Times uh, and other uh, you know, relatively serious media uh, on this side. Um, but that's a, that's a possibility. What we can also talk about is what's actually happened in recent months. Um, and that is that Gazprom has been supplying, um, I think, uh, only on uh, long term contracts. That is the, the so much of the gas that Gazprom sells into Europe is on these contracts. Uh, there's some uh the, 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 there's some facility in these contracts for some additional volumes to those customers and then of course uh Gazprom can if it wants sell additional gas uh onto the free market the the european gas market it has not been doing that um and that decision combined with the rebound from the pandemic economically, the high demand for liquefied natural gas in Asia and a cold winter has helped uh, to put uh, to, to drive the gas prices up to the uh, very, very high levels uh, where they are now. Now, I think one thing we can say is um, this reflects the political strand of Russian policy, not the commercial strand. I mean, if we just think about the people who are sitting in the uh, Gazprom export, uh, it's a commercial company, its job is to make money. I mean, obviously, at these prices, they will be scouring um, Russia and indeed uh, calling their Central Asian neighbours and saying, look, can you possibly get us a few more cubic metres? Because at these prices, we can only win by selling into the market. But you know, quite clearly, they haven't done that. Quite clearly, uh, that's because the Russian government is uh, at odds with the European governments. And, uh, you know, government spokesmen, up to and including uh, President Putin, have said that. Uh, they've linked this uh, issue of uh, gas export policy to uh, specifically the certification of uh, Nord Stream 2. They're fed up with the uh, Germans who have delayed that certification, again, for clearly for reasons to do with political relationships. Um, they're also fed up, with, which is a, perhaps a, a minor issue in the political scheme of things. They're also fed up with the um, trend in the European gas market away from long-term contracts and towards uh, uh, liberalised um, market relationships. Um, and of course, ironically, we've seen in the Western press a lot of outrage that, uh, you know, how dare those uh, Russians limit these uh, gas flows. But of course, that's the working of the market. It's a free market. And uh, pushing gas in that direction towards uh, a, a, a free market arrangement has been a central plank of EU energy policy for, you know, 10 or more years. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and 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 I've, um, I've I've discussed this at length on on the podcast and in the newsletter too. Um, I, I guess one other, uh, I mean, it's interesting to hear that perspective because you, you could, in a sense, argue it the other way around. Um, that you know, withholding the the kind of top up sales of gas into spot markets on top of long term contractual commitments, 
you could see that as a commercial decision because withholding those extra volumes kept prices elevated um and so that that would have that would have helped to kind of you know increase the margins on those units of gas that were being sold into uh, and capturing ttf prices whereas if they had kind of you know scoured their 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 regions for extra extra volumes to to supply uh, west westward markets then that would have brought the price down again and and so like the kind of overall margin per unit would have would have fallen i would imagine so so could you not see it as a commercial decision as well as not just a political one i it, i mean there may be a commercial aspect to it and i mean you'd have to be a, a gas trader and, and better at the maths than i am to work out i mean exactly as you say of course um the, and you know to know more about the terms of those contracts and the extent to which they're linked to market prices because of course some of them have a, a you know there's a proportion in those sales contracts now generally which are linked to TTF or one of the other hubs whereas previously um they tended to be on uh oil link prices so uh yeah you'd have you'd have to know the details and the maths to 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 work that out eventually i mean i just uh it I, I suppose I'm instinctively assuming that, yes, if you have these very high prices, if you sell a bit of the product, you know, on that, if they put a small, uh, if they if put some small volumes onto the hubs, um, you just can't, small enough not to bring the price back down, uh, you just can't see that that wouldn't have been a profitable business. But I admit, I mean, that, that's a, yeah, that's a bit of, speculation from me who never made money as a a, a trader of gas um no me neither we're probably both in the wrong business right now um <laughs> but uh the um you mentioned liberalization of markets and um uh, this is more of an observation about what you just said rather than a question but um I, uh it, it's my, my the way i see it is you described this kind of 10-year project to move to market pricing of gas and um and how you know, Gazprom resisted that um said you know you you're better off on long-term contracts uh, I, I suppose the the observation is that this this kind of headlong push to towards liberalization to kind of gas on gas competition to having lng compete with pipeline gas on traded hubs um it it, it has kind of weakened Europe's resilience against political manipulation of markets because Gazprom was always at liberty to do what it's done, which is to withhold volumes from a market that are not bound by long-term contractual commitments. I suppose you could see that as potentially a sort of strategic political national security or continent-wide security issue or or oversights from the mandarins in Brussels. Would you say that's a kind of a fair observation? Yeah, it's a fair observation, and the the behaviour of those mandarins in Russia in Brussels is in line with the whole trend of um, European and American policy making. You know, since the birth of so called neoliberalism with Thatcher and Reagan, so it's not a huge surprise, but it, you know, it has these unintended consequences. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk a bit more about the situation in Ukraine and uh, its, its its kind of economic and domestic energy situation. You wrote a paper, uh, I presume it was your last one for the OIS in December, about Ukraine's energy-intensive economy and its burdensome reliance on natural gas imports and the many difficulties of achieving uh, Kiev's climate commitments under the Paris Agreement. 
Um, is there an opportunity, do you think, in decarbonisation for Ukraine to loosen Russia's economic stranglehold over the country um, by switching to lower carbon or zero carbon energy sources such as nuclear? Um, or is there a danger because Ukraine has enormous coal reserves that, that coal could be used to achieve geopolitical and energy security objectives at the expense of the climate? Uh, yeah, so... Thanks for the question. I think the um, I think the problem, a lot of the problem with Ukrainian energy policy is it comes in bits, and the bit that relates to coal is really quite high up the agenda in Ukraine's relationship with the various European institutions, and Ukraine's coming under a lot of uh, pressure from Europe via the energy community to speed up the uh the the transition away from both coal production and coal uh, consumption um it's uh it, it, it's on a timetable uh, in line with its um commitments in the uh, energy community to um basically play by uh, european rules um and uh, it's obviously we've already seen attempts by uh, officials at the energy ministry to redo that timetable, which is uh, under which there's already extra time been given. They want more extra time uh, to phase out the coal uh, more slowly. Why? Because it's difficult and it's difficult not least because um, th there are communities in eastern Ukraine uh, where there are enough difficulties uh, as it is, as we've been discussing, there are communities that are dependent on the coal industry historically, and um, it's possible, uh, as we know very, very well from the uh, British example, it's possible to uh, have a transition away from coal in an absolutely terrible way that makes those communities suffer even more than they've uh, suffered uh, producing the coal. Uh, they end up suffering even more uh, from the phase out of uh, coal production. There's actually no reason in the world why it should be like that. Uh, <clears throat> but obviously, people fear it will be. Um, so, uh, I mean, reducing the role of coal is a, is a completely achievable aim. Um, don't forget, quite a lot of coal mines have been closed down in the separatist controlled areas uh, and flooded in the course of the um, armed conflict. Uh, so a big chunk of coal production uh, was lost um, in a completely unplanned way, uh, but it's quite possible to phase out uh, the coal without any uh, excessive uh, suffering in those communities. There are NGOs churning out reports about this in uh, both in Kiev and in uh, Germany as to how this could be done, and uh, it's to be hoped that uh, there'll be some consistent uh, policy adopted uh, in line with those sort of uh, suggestions. Um, coal is clearly uh, you know, a fuel of the past, uh, so a road has to be found away from it. Um, as for nuclear, of course, uh, Ukraine is a country where there's been a, a very, very serious nuclear accident uh, in living memory at Chernobyl, and um, there are elements that, well, in, in uh, the energy sector, there are people in the Ukrainian government who see expanding nuclear as a key uh, sort of road forward for energy policy. Uh, 
my own view is that Ukraine, like many other countries, would get far more uh, than it presently plans to uh, by investing more and more effectively, first of all, in energy efficiency. Uh, and in Ukraine, that certainly starts, well, not starts, but I mean, certainly a big part of that is the housing stock, um, which is which is old. It's Soviet era. You know, most people live in flats that went up in the 70s that were even the 60s that were great at the time, but they're getting very old now. They're very leaky. And uh, secondly, uh, renewables. Um, and the, if serious commitment, serious investment was made in those two areas, uh, Ukrainian energy policy could go a, a massive way towards uh, where it needs to go, not only for Ukraine's sake, but also uh, in the sense of climate policy. Okay, well, that that leads us into um, the, the the question of what Euro European Commission um, wants from Ukraine in in the energy transition, and uh, and they've been very clear that it's hydrogen. Um, the, I think Ukraine was identified as a as a, a priority partner in the the European Commission's hydrogen strategy, and I believe that Ukraine is drawing up its own national strategy for hydrogen. Um, uh, perhaps you could talk around the uh, the potential for the production of hydrogen in Ukraine, both from renewables and, of course, from natural gas. Talking about the green and blue varieties, um, and uh, there's even been some talk, um, perhaps a little bit uh, based on wishful thinking, but around the idea that that, that hydrogen production and exports into Europe could even replace or go some way to replacing. The, the likely lost gas transit revenues that you described earlier. Yeah, uh, Seb. So first of all, um, it's only, only fair to say I'm a hydrogen sceptic in the sense that I think um, we're hearing an enormous amount of talk about so this is general. This is not. Uh, this is not a Ukrainian issue solely. We're hearing an awful lot of talk about hydrogen's role in the uh, energy transition. Um, but uh, well, you, you, you understand the uh, technological limitations. You either produce it from. You either produce it from methane by uh, taking the carbon out, in which case you've got to put the carbon somewhere. At the moment, the hydrogen industry puts that into the atmosphere. So uh, it, it, greenhouse gas emissions from uh, hydrogen are not far short of where they are from aviation on a global scale, which is an incredible kind of fact. And that's because uh, carbon capture and storage technology still doesn't work in a way that uh, makes the sums add up for uh, the companies that are trying to make it work. And uh, that's also being assigned a huge, huge role in the energy transition. So I'm very, very skeptical about all of that. Um, and as you also know, the uh, green hydrogen production is is great, uh, but it's very, very energy intensive. Um, and it, it only, to me, only makes sense. So obviously, I know the answer to this is, you know, they're hard to... Uh, there are there are sectors that are hard to decarbonize and so on and so on. I get all that, but we've got to we've got to be honest that uh, the uh, production of green hydrogen uh, only makes sense uh, when your um, electricity grid is already largely decarbonized. So as you've just we've just been talking about the fact that there's quite a uh, substantial chunk of coal still uh, on the 
you know, providing electricity uh, for the grid in Ukraine. So under those conditions to talk about using uh, renewable energy to produce hydrogen to export to Europe uh, strikes me as kind of being close to mad because the first call on that renewable energy, which I'm a great supporter of, um, the first call on that Ukraine on on that uh, renewable energy in Ukraine should obviously be into the electricity grid to displace uh, coal uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and as I said, Ukrainian energy policy, and not only Ukrainian, very often comes in, in bits. But if there was anything like an integrated energy policy, then the proposals that I've seen. Um, I mean, the European Commission hydrogen strategy just mentions Ukraine sort of almost in passing, but as you say, as a as a partner for import, but without fleshing out the details. Now, the stuff I've seen from the UN uh, Economic Council for Europe, where they do flesh out the details, is about this uh, renewable energy, uh, green hydrogen, uh, to uh, pipe to Europe through the transport system, uh, when you talk to people who understand the engineering challenges and the technological challenges, they sort of shake their heads uh, and say that uh, this is absurdly ambitious and there are a lot better things uh, and that could serve as priorities uh, for Ukrainian energy policy. And of course, it's all about priorities. It's not about whether there will ever be green hydrogen uh, produced in Ukraine. It's about what are the priorities. The priorities are to get the coal off the grid, uh, the priorities are to um, make the energy system much, much more efficient. The priorities are to uh, sort out the housing stock. Uh, and uh, if, if if I was in charge of Ukrainian energy policy, which obviously I'm never going to be, I would uh, respectfully suggest that the European Commission that uh, Ukraine has uh, other things to sort out first uh, before this hydrogen export scheme. Uh, yeah, and, and um, another thing that goes unmentioned uh, quite a lot is the significant reserves of natural gas that Ukraine has been sitting on, uh, well, from time immemorial. And of course, these reserves have gone undeveloped, even as Ukraine has paid the incredibly high economic and political price of relying on imports from Russia and from other neighbours. Um, so it, it just seems kind of unrealistic that if they if they were never able to uh, align things to, to, to direct investment into uh, a, you know, a relatively straightforward known resource that is sitting in the ground and, and make use of this tremendous infrastructure that they have to, to then pipe it to, to a willing buyer in Europe on their doorstep, um, then the idea that they can jump through so many more technological hoops and 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 get the investment required to, to to actually turn to hydrogen almost like and skip their their gas resources um it, it seems kind of far-flung indeed yes and um it, i i mean as as you're well aware and your listeners are well aware i mean there's a there's a in terms of the energy transition there are those who talk about gas as a uh, as a bridge fuel and those who say that uh, you know, gas needs to be counted as a fossil fuel and phased out as quickly as possible. Um, now, wherever you stand on that, and I would, you know, I, I think all fossil fuels should be um, phased out as, fun- as soon as possible. But looking at it from a Ukrainian uh, national point of view, yes, uh, Ukraine is still, I mean, it has stopped direct imports from Russia. That's actually been a uh, 
a significant success for Ukrainian gas companies in the sense that that was their strategic uh, aim. They didn't they, they were also paying slightly higher prices for Russian gas in 2014-15 than they were for uh, the imports that come in from the western side. All, all, all consisting, by the way, of molecules that start off in Siberia and go to Central Europe and then are re-imported into Ukraine. But uh, nevertheless, having made that step forward, I mean, Ukraine does still import um, 10, 12 uh, billion cubic meters of gas a year. Um, that could be uh, replaced with its own gas. The problem is investment. The problem is um you know, attracting uh, companies to make that investment, uh, that, that, that's a real problem uh, for Ukraine, which somehow uh, has to be solved. I mean, I think they could, uh, in the foreseeable future, do what they've been talking about in the gas industry for many, many years, which is to bring the uh, level of gas consumption down below uh, the level of uh, Ukrainian production. And Again, whatever your kind of broader view on the transition, I mean, that surely is is more of a priority than to talk about uh, hydrogen to suit uh, European uh, policy imperatives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just one sort of final observation or talking points um, in, in researching uh, for this podcast. Then I discovered that uh, the Ukrainian government actually imposed retroactive cuts to wind and solar tariffs. And that this prompted a wave of um, legal action against the government by the investors who had um, obviously deployed capital on the basis of a certain level of remuneration, which was then clawed back uh, retrospectively, which is always a really bad thing to do because, you know, once bitten twice shy, investors very rarely return with as much eagerness to a market that's um, caused them to uh, lose money or take a haircut. Uh, do you see that as being a kind of a further obstacle to sort of leveraging investments required to well into any aspect of um, Ukraine's energy space? Yeah, I, I <laughs> it's a great question, Seb, and it, again, it it, uh, it it touches on one's larger uh, view of the world. So, yeah, obviously, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to if you're trying to attract uh, if you're trying to attract big companies with lots of resources into uh, your renewable sector, don't do that. And uh, that message was uh, spelled out to the Ukrainian government pretty clearly. And in fact, they I think they negotiated eventually some sort of uh, solution uh, to that. Uh, my, my bigger view of the world just is that my um, sympathy for those corporations is not not completely. Uh, Un unlimited in the sense that they have identifiably and in uh, the you know in post-Soviet Ukrainian history, so not that long ago, kind of trashed uh, the Ukrainian economy uh, in order to enrich themselves in ways that I mean, this is not a controversial statement. This is uh, something that happened in front of all of our eyes. That's how uh, some of those corporations became very rich and uh, powerful. So. Yeah, um, I, I would like to see a stronger uh, policy directed towards renewables uh, and towards energy efficiency. I'd like to see that in Ukraine. I'd like to see that in the UK. I'd like to see that in many, many countries. Yeah, um, same here, Simon. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, it's been a uh, uh, it, it's a highly enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
Um, okay. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Bye-bye.